Welcome back to Mafia. And in this Audio Boom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. In our first episode, Fleet Cooper tells the story of one of the most powerful, flamboyant, and dangerous mafia bosses of all time, Sam Giacana. He'd killed a lot of people, had a lot of people killed. He was a very personable guy, and he would go out of his way to help people when he could. But you didn't cross him. If you crossed him, you were in deep trouble. Sam Giancana was utterly ruthless, willing to do anything in his pursuit of power. Sam Giancana was the most powerful criminal chief in the history of the United States. And forget about Al Capone. I'd say he was far more powerful than Al Capone, and he was a giant. Maybe, maybe the most powerful criminal chief in the history of the United States. But unlike most mobsters, he didn't live his life in the shadows. He had a beautiful showbiz girlfriend. He was pals with Frank Sinatra. Sam Giancana didn't like to keep a low profile. He liked the big life. He liked to be seen with the stars and things like that. His influence reached the highest echelons of American politics, helping to get John F. Kennedy elected to president and assisting in the CIA's darkest operations. Under his reign, the mob and politics combined with deadly results. Chicago, 1918, home to 40,000 Italian immigrants, all desperate for something better than the grinding rural poverty back in the old country. Conditions were tough, often without heat, electricity, or decent plumbing. Filth and disease were everywhere. Survival depended on two maxims. Family comes first, and you always look after your own. It was into these conditions that 10-year-old Momo Salvatore Giancana found the 42s, a gang of street kids who made their living by stealing clothes from the wash lines in rich neighborhoods and taking them back to the Italian tenements to sell. But they quickly graduated to more serious crimes, and young Salvatore was eager to impress. Professor Robert Blakey. He started out as a, a, just a, a hustler, uh, a street hustler. Uh, he used to be a wheel man, meaning he'd drive a car. And what they would do is they'd throw an ash can through the window of a jewelry store and grab it and run. That's what it was. Eventually, he got in the mob. By 1923, Prohibition was in full swing, and the Chicago mob was thriving on bootlegging. Prohibition would do more to transform the lowly street gangs of America into a powerful criminal empire than any other single factor. And Sam Giancana was quick to take advantage. His savage nature turned out to be a valuable trait to the mob, also known as the outfit. He was also violent. Uh, but the people in the Chicago outfit almost are all violent. They kill people with a drop of a hat. Normally, organized crime is designed to lessen violence because they're the ones that are out there, and if they don't have violence, then they don't get killed. So it's sort of self-protection. Giancana graduated from wheelman to trigger man, a killer for the mob. And by the age of 20, he was the prime suspect in three murder investigations. 
Typical of mob-controlled Chicago, though, he wasn't tried. Former Department of Justice trial attorney David Shippers remembers coming face-to-face -face with him. When I first saw Sam Giancana sitting in that room, I thought, there is the arrogance, the hatred, the violence, the viciousness that I've dedicated my career to fighting. He's sitting right there. Your initial reaction is to walk up to him, smack him upside the head. But I thought, no, I'm not going to descend to their level. Sam's first big break came when he befriended one of Chicago's leading African-American gang leaders, Eddie Jones. Jones taught Giancana everything he knew about his business, the numbers game or policy racket, an illegal lottery that was earning Jones and his family $180,000 a week. Jones even put Giancana in charge of one of his lucrative establishments. But if Jones thought he'd found an ally, he was mistaken. Thomas Repetto, author of American Mafia, explains. His big inspiration was getting them in to take over the African-American policy business in, uh, in Chicago. After Giancana got the okay to take over the, uh, the black policy operations, uh, they went out and kidnapped the leading black policy operator. Uh, they slugged him, slugged his secretary, and shot at a police car that chased them. They were pretty reckless guys. It was through him that the mob in Chicago decided to take over the, the black lottery. And it's nickel and dime, but they add up at the end of the day a lot of additional money. Now, take it over does not mean that, that they went out and did it. They just killed a guy. Giancana's crew shot Eddie Jones's main rival and persuaded Jones himself to leave town. It was a risky move, but it impressed the Dons, as former FBI agent Jim Wagner explains. It was a first time that the Chicago outfit moved into the numbers racket and basically took it over and found out how much money they could make out of that. So that started Giancana on the rise. And it's really um, a basic to organized crime that the person who brings in the most money gets promoted the fastest, which isn't too much different than most companies. But Giancana had this ability to raise a lot of money. This new endeavor with the racket, the, the policy racket, uh, brought him a lot of influence. And then he expanded on that. In 1957, Tony Accardo, the current boss of the outfit, decided to step down. And 49-year-old Sam Giancana was installed in his place. But not everyone thought he was the right guy for the job. Tony, I think, saw the way the world was going with the Kennedys, the Justice Department, the federal government. And he decided to remove himself from the direct line of fire. I mean, there was a big gambling boss in Chicago who every year for 30 years announced he was retiring. Your <laughs> retirement party to sort of throw law enforcement off. And Giancana took over. Now, when Giancana took over, a lot of guys in the mob were not happy because they said he's reckless. Uh, he doesn't have the judgment that's required of a boss. A boss has a lot of things to do. He's got to be respected. He's got to keep the, the, the family in line. He's got to keep other people in line. And he's got to make money. He's got to be a good businessman. He's got to have good judgment. And they didn't think Giancana had it. Nevertheless, Sam Giancana, the once poor street kid, was now Chicago's rich and powerful mafia don. Peter Vera. 
Sam Giancana was the most powerful criminal chief in the history of the United States. He had his tentacles into the police, to the courts, to the, the business world around uh, Chicago, uh, and uh, cases they could not prove, but information that the, the investigative agencies had of just how powerful he was. And according to David Shippers, Giancana even controlled Chicago's politics. In this city, no criminal enterprise is going to work until they've got the politicians in their pocket. He had the politicians. And I mean all of them. It seemed as if Giancana was untouchable. But just as he'd reached the pinnacle of his power, the federal government turned on organized crime. The nation's underworld gets the unwelcome spotlight of publicity as the Senate's investigation subcommittee begins new hearings on crime. The Senate Labor Rackets Committee was investigating mafia corruption in the trade unions, and the committee's chief legal counsel, an eager young lawyer from Boston, was making a name for himself by grilling witness after witness about their mob connections. His name was Robert Kennedy. Let me take you inside uh, the McClellan Committee hearing room. John Siegenthaler was a young print journalist assigned to cover the hearings. John McClellan, the chairman, uh, was the focal point. Immediately to his left uh, sat Robert Kennedy, who conducted most of the questioning. And immediately to his left, to Robert Kennedy's left, were his brother, Senator John F. Kennedy, um, the second-ranking Democrat. Um, the hearing room uh, was packed with interested citizens, um, and the press row uh, always was overflowing. Um, reporters were like theater critics. Uh, they were going to um, report this story, but at the same time convey the idea that, um, that, that this was really drama, uh, as much uh, as, I mean, it was real-life drama. And, uh, and it was exciting to watch. The televised hearings were watched by over a million people across the country. The more prominent the person answering Robert Kennedy's questions, the more drama. Uh, if it was a trucking official, asked about his relationship um, with the union, uh, you wanted to, to cover that. If it was a mob figure like Giacana, uh, it was not just, um, it was not just that it was important business, it was important business that was gonna resonate all across the country. I mean, there was gonna be, um, the story you wrote was going to be read. On June 9, 1959, the witness being questioned by Bobby Kennedy was Sam Giancana. Could you tell us uh, whether if uh, you have opposition from anybody that you dispose of them by having them stuffed in a trunk? Is that what you do, Mr. Giancana? The client answer because I honestly believe my answer might turn incriminating. Giancana refused to answer Kennedy's questions. 
Former Department of Justice trial attorney David Shippers explains. We, uh, in the United States Constitution, there's an amendment, the, it's the Fifth Amendment, part of the Bill of Rights. The key part, as far as we're concerned here, is the provision that no person shall be required to be a witness against himself in any criminal matter, et cetera, et cetera. When you take the fifth, you say essentially, I respectfully decline to answer on the grounds that my answer might tend to incriminate me, and nobody can touch you for it. Will you tell us anything about any of your operations, or just a, a giggle every time I ask you a question? Decline to answer because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. I thought only little girls giggled, Mr. Giancana. Bobby Kennedy's taunts were likely an attempt to light Giancana's famously short fuse. I remember being in the hearing room uh, the day Robert Kennedy uh, confronted Giancana and uh, with some demon, uh, demeaning commentary. Um, and the effect of it was you're a sissy, you're a little girl. And um, the result of it uh, was, uh, you could tell that Giacana was seething with anger. He was not about to answer any question except to take the Fifth Amendment. Um, and I think Bob was encouraged by that to press him harder, hoping that Giacana didn't have that same rule about never get mad without a reason. I think he was hoping that Giacana would explode. Um, but, you know, Sam Mooney Giacana was a cool customer himself. He was a cool cat. And uh, uh, I never thought he really gave a damn. Round one went to Sam Giancana. Kennedy could get nothing on him. And there was a reason the Chicago boss felt untouchable. He was well-connected to the Kennedys themselves. Robert Kennedy's brother had his sights on the White House. But John F. Kennedy's path to becoming the Democratic presidential nominee was anything but certain. A Boston Irish Catholic couldn't get elected to anything in staunchly Protestant states like Wisconsin and West Virginia back in the 60s. The wealthy Kennedy clan decided to buy support in these key primary elections, and they reached out to an influential family friend for help, Frank Sinatra. Sinatra was a friend of the, the Kennedy family, the family, and Jack Kennedy in, in particular. And Sinatra had a friend who knew all about using bribery and coercion to get his way, Sam Giancana. I have every reason to believe that there was mob money in, in the uh, West Virginia election. And I have that from several different sources. Uh, the person who handled the money was Frank Sinatra. Sinatra had the mob's money in, in, in the West Virginia elections. And the, the way in which you don't buy votes as such, but you, you give people walking around money is what it's called, and they encourage other people to come to the polls. Giancana supposedly gave one of his men $50,000 to spread around West Virginia. He bought local politicians new office furniture and paid bar owners to keep Sinatra's campaign song, High Hopes, playing on jukeboxes. 
Giancana's efforts seemed to help, and John F. Kennedy became the Democratic nominee. But an even bigger challenge lay ahead. Kennedy faced the sitting vice president, Richard Nixon, in the race for the White House. The election was too close to call. Pundits were saying that whoever won the state of Illinois would win the presidency. And the key to Illinois was Chicago. First Ward of, of Chicago was notorious as a uh, mafia stronghold. Well, number one, he would deliver the votes whenever they needed it. The First Ward was always notorious for bringing in the votes. As not only the First Ward, though, but a number of the wards were controlled by mafia or outfit people. And they could, they could make or break somebody. They put their own people in as aldermen. I mean, the first ward for years. I mean, ba going back to Al Capone. And they had, they, they had a number of their individuals in the state legislature. Uh, they could deliver the vote and they could destroy you. If they, if they put the word out that they weren't gonna, you're not to vote for X, X was dead, X couldn't win. And that's how Giancana kept the thing going. He would brook no inter interference. I mean, he was ruthless when it came right down to it. In my opinion, Giancana was contacted by Joe Kennedy out here in Chicago. Now that we know happened. Remember, the, the FBI was following these people all the time. I am in my mind and convinced that there was a deal cut. That uh, if Giancana would get the Chicago, get Illinois for the Democrats, that he would be given free hand. Old man Kennedy, Joe, sent Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, to talk to Giancana. Giancana thought he heard Sinatra say, if you do, if you carry Illinois for us, there'll be no bothering you. The Kennedys won't go after you. Sinatra persuaded Giancana to throw the mob forces behind Kennedy in the 1960 presidential election. Giancana prevailed upon mob-controlled unions to vote Kennedy. There were even claims that his hoods intimidated voters at polling stations. Illinois was won by, by Jack Kennedy by, what, 10,000 votes out of over, I think, 3 million cast. And listening to the radio, listening to the returns coming in, it was obvious that there was a theft underway. Downstate, which was usually Republican and were coming in for Nixon, were, they, they were holding out precincts down there. Chicago was holding out precincts up here, and they weren't reporting the vote at certain precincts. Well, when you looked at the precincts in Chicago that were being held out, it was the First Ward, the 20th Ward, and those areas out there that were controlled. The last one in won the election, and that was, came out of the, the right places. That, that, that election was stolen. No question about it in my mind. That's an opinion. Obviously, if, we could, if I could prove it, I would, we would have been after it the next day, but I couldn't prove anything. But uh, I, I am convinced that Illinois, Nixon would have won Illinois had there not been the hanky-panky. But that's elections in Illinois. I mean, it's one of these things that uh, you have to live with, I guess. Kennedy beat Nixon by just one-tenth of one percent. Not since 1916 had a presidential election been so close. 
Somewhat afternoon on the day after the election, Senator Kennedy received a telegram from the vice president congratulating him on his victory. With this in his pocket... Sam was quick to claim that he was responsible for Kennedy getting elected. And while most dispute this, Giancana believed it. And crucially, he expected payback. So Giancana can legitimately think that he had done his work and the Democrat, that close on election that night, that he had tipped it and that he could expect some, some result. Giancana wanted Bobby Kennedy off his back. He's even quoted as saying that they'd promised to take care of him and Bobby would soon be just another goddamned lawyer. He thought he'd gained the power to influence the highest office in the land. And things just seemed to keep getting better. In Las Vegas, Giancana had met the beautiful Phyllis McGuire, lead singer of the popular squeaky clean trio, the McGuire Sisters. She was 29. Giancana was 52. Phyllis McGuire was a big star, beautiful, wholesome, America's darling. So what was she doing with the likes of Giancana? I was always titillated by it. I think the public was titillated by the fact that here's this beautiful, uh, innocent-looking professional singer, uh, admired, even loved by an awful lot of people who followed her and her career with her sisters. And suddenly they discover, for heaven's sakes, what's she doing with Sam Giancana? Um, you know, is she not the innocent little lamb we always thought as she was, and what do her sisters think about that? Shuffling, shuffling, shuffling down, scrambling, scrambling, heading for town, hustling, bustling, buzzing around, happily awaiting at station. I thought Giacana uh, was all sort of proud of the relationship with one of the famous McGuire sisters. I think he sort of saw it as uh, as, uh, as adding to his uh, image as a, uh, uh, as a mob figure. I, uh, and I don't think he cared a damn about what publicity about the relationship did to Phyllis McGuire. Uh, I, I, um, I thought uh, Sam Giacano was uh, cold in mind, cold in heart, cold in spirit, and cared not a damn about what anybody thought about him um, or what he did. Giancana lavished gifts of furs, cars, and jewelry on Phyllis and followed her to performances all over the U.S. He even accompanied her on a two-week European tour. But the high-profile relationship worried many of Giancana's mob associates. With all of his flamboyancy and all of his... Uh, I would say bringing heat, that's their term. Every time you look around, Sam Giancana's picture was in the front page or something, or he was at the poolside with somebody. And uh, the old timers didn't like that one bit. But Sam was very good at what he does. And Sam also had the backing of the commission. I mean, I'm talking about the five families in New York, uh, Cleveland, 
New Orleans, the West Coast, Vegas. And remember, at that time, Chicago was running Vegas. Amazingly, while making headlines and helping Kennedy get elected, Giancana was also meeting with one of the most powerful and secretive of all American government agencies, the CIA. At that time, many crime families had lucrative business interests on the poverty-stricken island of Cuba. Cuba was a gold mine for the mob. A lot of money made down there in the casinos and the joints. Uh, and Castro took it away completely. On New Year's Day 1959, Fidel Castro's rebel forces swept into Havana and seized power from the old mob-friendly regime of President Batista. When Castro nationalized land and American businesses, he cost the mob and the U.S. government untold millions of dollars. Remember, they were running this Cuba. They were, they were running amok down there under Batista. And when Castro came in, he threw them all out. So they were not happy with him. If they could get rid of Castro, they could move back in. And it wasn't just the mob who wanted Castro gone. The U.S. government bristled at a dangerous communist on America's doorstep. Castro was supporting uh, the Soviet bloc, uh, so he wasn't uh, too well liked by the American government. And he had closed the, he had taken over all the mob casinos in Cuba and throwing them out of Cuba. Uh, so when the intelligence agencies were planning to get rid of Castro, who would you go to? You go to mob guys who had good connections in Cuba, they operated there for years, and are pretty good at killing people. In August 1960, on the basis that my enemy's enemy is my friend, a CIA contact met with Giancana and another gangland boss, Santos Traficante. The aim? Arrange a hit on Fidel Castro. They're very naive. They're certainly naive about the organized crime. They're not a hit squad. You can't buy them to kill people. They thought they could. At the clandestine meeting at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami, the CIA suggested a Capone-style attack with Castro going down in a hail of bullets, but Giancana preferred to do it quietly. He suggested using pills to poison Castro's food or drink. The CIA agreed. A U.S. government agency secretly commissioning gangsters to commit murder. What could go wrong? The reason you don't deal with those people, if you're the government, is you're now... You've you, you, if you're going to sup with the devil, you've got to have a long spoon, that Irish proverb. And once you've dealt with them and they've given you something, then they have a right to ask for something back. And you don't want a reciprocal relationship with them. You're compromised. Giancana soon turned the situation to his advantage. He'd become convinced that Phyllis was having an affair with showbiz comedian Dan Rowan. So he talked the CIA into planting a bug in Rowan's hotel room. But it all went horribly wrong. The agent was discovered by hotel staff and arrested. The CIA feared the mob connection and the Castro assassination plot would get out. The agency did not want that plotting to come public. And they were afraid to death of any public examination of Giancana. To avoid a public trial, 
CIA Director of Security Sheffield Edwards confessed the whole sordid affair to the FBI. One day, this would all come back to haunt both the CIA and Sam Giancana. But there was another shock in store for Giancana. In January 1961, just a couple of months into his presidency, John F. Kennedy announced he was appointing his brother Bobby as Attorney General. Far from being just another lawyer, as Giancana had predicted, Robert Kennedy was now the country's top law enforcement officer, in charge of the Department of Justice and the FBI. The last thing they thought was they would get Robert Kennedy as the Attorney General. Anybody but Robert Kennedy, that was a surprise. Bobby Kennedy declared war on the Mafia. To Giancana, it was a betrayal. The fact that he came up with money and helped uh, JFK win uh, went by the board. Kennedy set about radically reforming the Department of Justice and the FBI. In Chicago, where there were previously only 10 FBI agents, Kennedy added 60 more. Giancana called them G-men, short for government men, dismissing them as Boy Scouts. But Kennedy's agents were a new breed. Clean-cut, college-educated, many of them lawyers, they were fanatically committed and incorruptible. Unlike other Chicago law enforcement, Giancana couldn't buy them. Kennedy also recruited new talent to the Justice Department's organized crime and racketeering section. Among them was young lawyer David Shippers. Robert Kennedy hired me. Uh, I, had, I was working for a Chicago law firm, and uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't happy at the firm because it was one of these big firms, and they wouldn't let me try cases. They wouldn't let me get into court. So I had friends who were working in the United States Attorney's Office. And I stopped over there and asked them to, uh, how, what could I do that maybe I could get a job here? Well, my friend brought in the then United States Attorney, Jim O'Brien, and he asked me about my background and so on and so forth, and I told him I had been working quite a bit in labor law. And he says, oh, wait a minute, there's somebody who might want to talk to you. And of course, he went out and the next thing, and here comes Robert Kennedy and him. And they started talking, and uh, Kennedy said, we need someone to work on labor racketeering in Chicago. Well, you know, that was right down my alley. So I told him that, and I was hired. Under Kennedy, the organized crime and racketeering section grew from 17 to 63 lawyers. He was extremely driven. He absolutely hated what he called the outfit, the mafia, organized crime. When he, once he saw what they were doing to the country and what they were, how they were destroying everything in, that they get involved in, killing people, uh, destroying businesses, he decided he had to do something about it, and he did. Another of Kennedy's young lawyers was Robert Blakey. You can think of the Department of Justice as an a aircraft carrier, and you can't turn an aircraft carrier on a dime. They don't have brakes. You can slow it down and steer it. He turned it on a dime and took it in a different direction. Robert Kennedy's goal was to get all government agencies working together to break the grip of organized crime. He talked directly to you. And of course, it, it, 
it gave us a whole feeling of electricity in what we were doing and commitment to what we were doing and we worked extra hours and all that sort of thing. As I say, he was very down to earth and uh, he would brook no nonsense. When he'd come out to Chicago, he came out to Chicago often and we'd have a meeting in the U.S. Attorney's Office. The FBI would be there, the DEA, all of these uh, various uh, federal, uh, I suppose, federal agencies. And uh, they would get up, they, they had, each one of them had a canned speech. And he'd start, to, and Kennedy would look at him and just say, cut the BS, how many people have you arrested? And that's the way he was. He was very direct, very open. When we started our, uh, the organized crime and racketeering section, they put us in an unmarked room on the eighth floor of the old federal building. We did feel that we were kind of like the new untouchables. We had a special unit of each agency that worked with us. We did everything in secret around behind that door. We had no goal except to try and ferret out the bad guys. Originally, we started focusing on Tony Accardo, Paul DeWey Rica, and some of the big old timers. As we got into it more, we realized that the real operating head of the uh, organized crime in, in Chicago and a member of the national syndicate was Sam Giancana. Giancana became their primary target, but bringing him down wouldn't be easy. What we started to do was work cases, trying to work our way up, and we'd start at the bottom. And we, we did, we got some top-notch people that way. But always there was a Sam Giancana hanging out there the one guy that nobody seemed to be able to touch. And almost every time I would meet my guys, I would ask them, anything going on Giancana? Have you come up with it? Because he was working out of the west side of Chicago and the western suburbs. We had cases that we were working in those suburbs. And we were trying our darndest to find Sam Giancana. All he had to do was surface once, and we'd be able to put him into a conspiracy of some kind. Couldn't find anything. The FBI now had Giancana under close surveillance. His headquarters were in the back of the Armory Lounge Bar and Restaurant in Chicago's Forest Park suburb. Despite FBI surveillance, his business remained behind closed doors. Eyeball one to dugout. I read you loud and clear. Or so he thought. 10-3, eyeball one. Stay with it. The G-men had a new weapon that would turn Giancana's world upside down. Electronic surveillance. Uh, Bobby Kennedy decided that organized crime was a national security. It was a threat to the United States and fell in that category that you could exercise a wiretap and install a wiretap without a warrant. And he placed a wiretap on a number of persons, one of which was Sam Giancana. Two agents who'd been assigned to follow Giancana, Romer and Hill, even managed to hide a microphone right inside the Armory Lounge. The G-men soon overheard mobster Potsy Poe complaining to Giancana. I never thought it'd be this fucking rough. You told me when they put his brother in there, we're going to see some fireworks. But I never knew it would be like this. This is murder. They concentrate on certain individuals. You mean the outfit? Yeah. 
The tapes also revealed how Giancana advised his driver and bodyguard, Butch Blasi, about the Mafia Code of Silence, as Robert Blakey remembers. Butch Blasi comes up to Giancana and begins talking about business. And Giancana, there was a, a stuffed fish over the bar. And he points up to the stuffed fish and says, you know how that fish got in trouble? He opened his mouth. And, of course, he's saying this into a bug himself, but he's telling uh, Butch Blasey to, uh, to don't talk about all that kind of stuff. Romer and Hill did their utmost to exploit Giancana's weak spot, his relationship with Phyllis McGuire. They followed the couple closely, photographing and filming them. They also listened in on their bedroom chat, whether in Las Vegas or Maryland, Pittsburgh or Atlantic City the pressure began to get to Giancana, as the wiretap transcripts reveal. Now Roma, he spots us. He says, hello, Mo, and he walks away. Then we move out of there into the other room, and who the fuck walks in but that shit hill? Determined to make Giancana crack, the FBI turned up the heat even more with what they called lockstep surveillance. Giancana was under such intense surveillance that Carloads of FBI agents would follow right on his back bumper. They, everywhere he went, they went. There was an all-out campaign against Giancana, which made him very angry. He played golf. They were behind him, just everywhere he went. And it sent him off like a Roman candle. It was pure, simple harassment. They weren't getting anything out of that. The guy's out on a golf course playing golf, and they're standing around on the, on the green while he putts out. It was pure harassment. But it was the newspapers liked it. Oh, yeah, they're following Giancana around everywhere, doing everything that they want. Actually, it wasn't a very smart idea. It drove Giancana mad. A surveillance recording from June 1963 reveals that his mob associates thought he was becoming dangerously unhinged. That fucking Giancana... Wait till you hear what he's done now. He's now making good decisions. What happened? Charlie McCarthy told Roma that Mo told him to tell Kennedy to talk to him through Sinatra. Oh, for Christ's sake, that's a cardinal rule. You don't give up a legit guy. He tells Roma that Sinatra's our guy to Kennedy? More or less. I'm so fucking mad I could jump out your window. We gotta do something about this. The G is driving this man goofy. What Giancana did next was extraordinary. He decided to take the FBI to court, claiming their lockstep operation violated his civil rights. I think he was, he was just so mad, so unhappy that these people were interfering with his golf game, that he decided, hey, no, they got nothing on me. I'll sue them. I don't think he asked anybody's advice because they would have told him, don't be nuts. To his associates, it seemed crazy. A mafia boss risking testifying in court. Giancana was willingly opening himself up to being cross-examined about any and all illegal deeds. Talk about bringing heat. Here you're suing the Federal Bureau of Investigation because they're following it. The, the word coming from the street at that time was that the old-timers were livid at him because he was bringing this heavy heat 
for no reason. You know, what? they're not hurting you. Let them follow you. Let them make fools out of themselves. In June 1963, the case got underway. When Giancana took the stand, all the newspapers, television, everybody was there with bated breath. In a darkened courtroom, Giancana's lawyer showed footage of the FBI's lockstep operation in action. Next, he showed film of Giancana's respectable lifestyle, playing a round of golf, going to church, and visiting his father's grave. They'd hired their own film crew for the job. Now it was the government's turn, and the American public was hanging on every word. They expected to see a colossal cross-examination. He didn't cross-examine them. A couple of questions and let it go. There's a reason for that. You don't cross-examine unless you got the, unless you got some evidence, and that was the problem. We had nothing. All they would have on Giancana are informants, hearsay evidence, uh, that he was seen in certain places with Phyllis McGuire. That's not legitimate cross-examination. Legitimate cross-examination is something where you can use it to impeach the, the individual. There was nothing there. You had to be able to prove what you were saying. The court granted an injunction against the lockstep surveillance. The FBI agents would have to keep their distance from now on. Sam Giancana had, for the moment, beaten the FBI. But at what cost? He signed his death warrant because the FBI, from that day on, we got to get Giancana. By this point, Giancana's hatred of the Kennedys had reached fever pitch. Selwyn Rabb is a former New York Times reporter and author of Five Families. There was no question about the animosity that mob dons had for John F. Kennedy and for Bobby Kennedy. And there were numerous bugs picked up by the FBI uh, about the mob's hatred of Kennedy. One of them particularly was from Sam Giancana, who said, we broke our balls trying to get him elected, and look what he does against us, that son of a bitch. Wiretaps from all over the United States revealed worrying conversation between mobsters. With Kennedy, a guy should take a knife and stab and kill that fucker. I mean it. This is true. Honest to God. Right in the White House. Somebody's got to get rid of that fucker. They should kill the whole family. The mother and father, too. The mob actually considered the assassinations, for example, in, in Philadelphia, but they decided not to do it because it would be too high risk of venture. But after that time, the conversations about uh, Kennedy were really very vicious. On November 22nd, 1963, five months after Sam Giancana's successful court injunction, President Kennedy and his wife touched down in Dallas, Texas on their way to lunch with civic leaders. The motorcade begins the 11 mile ride to the Dallas Trademark where the president is to deliver a major address. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. As the president's limousine passed the Texas School Book Depository, the nephew of a mob bookmaker, Lee Harvey Oswald, was on the sixth floor, raising his rifle. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. There's numerous people running up the hill 
several police officers are rushing up the hill at this time. Stand by. The news reverberated around the world. The President of the United States is dead. President Kennedy has been assassinated. It's official now. The President is dead. And another man with mob connections, an alleged associate of Santos Traficante, would soon also hit the headlines as Oswald's killer. In the next episode, we'll explore the links between JFK's assassination and the Mafia. We'll speak to the lawmen who, through the most ingenious means, finally managed to bring down Sam Giancana. And we'll discover that even the most ruthless and powerful gangland bosses aren't safe from their own kind. This has been an Audioboom original. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.